Jonathan Ward is best known as the man behind Icon 4x4. If you're listening to this show, I'm sure you've seen his creations clad in matte paint on Instagram, or perhaps at SEMA over the years. At the end of the day, Jonathan considers himself to be a serial craftsman, but I'll take it a step further and label him an artist. His creativity has led him down several paths alongside his automotive business, including woodworking, leather goods, and quite literally down paths all over the world while gaining inspiration and furthering his expertise. I've met Jonathan several times over the years, and I've been a huge fan of his work even before meeting him, and I'll happily add this chat shares information I've never heard him talk about on other podcasts or interviews. In an attempt to dodge the child actor conversation, we do chat a bit about his childhood and what growing up was like. He shares a short story that involves falling from four stories high, and we talk about the importance of realizing you can't do it all alone, something I've been struggling with a lot lately with Standard H. We discuss music, creative flow, of course how TLC and Icon started, and why designing within confines is important. Ever wonder why his logo is a lizard? That's in here. And if you're wondering what Jonathan's thoughts are on the new 2021 Bronco, that's also in here, not to mention the inspiring work he's doing with his charity Go campaign. The list really does go on. Jonathan and I share so many of the same views of business with respect to design and manufacturing specifically, so I really hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. As 2020 comes to a close, as I sat down editing this episode, it truly felt like the mental road trip of an escape I needed, and I'm confident many of you will agree. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking part in the show. Certainly. Happy to be here. What? Uh, where did you grow up? Because I don't know this answer. Is it around here, right? No, I mean, I don't know if I ever really truly grew up, but I began my life in a small town in Maryland called Elkridge. Ah, Maryland. It's like 45 minutes out of Baltimore. Sure. And then when I was eight, I moved to New York City, and then New York City until I was 15, and then here in SoCal since 1985. Nice. What, uh, what did your folks do? So my folks are still alive and well. My mom either was dealing with me and my sister and in, in my early career was a full-time job for her. And then both my parents, their sort of OCD hobby has always been dogs. So like my dad's been a judge. They show dogs like they're hardcore into it. And my dad, as was I supposed to follow in his footstep, is a corporate maritime uh, litigator. So he just retired last year, but uh, long, long career as a maritime lawyer. Very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Wow. But it makes sense in the context of my family is from the Chesapeake Bay area of Virginia for seven generations and all crabbers and fishermen. Right. So my dad was the first one to go to college and law school and he was a coast guard captain and just it's always been sort of water centric. So then of course, are they here? No, they still live in Maryland. Oh, they're still in yeah. Maryland. So you were just hopping around to yep. New York and everything. Yeah. My mom had to move with me to New York. Um, and then when I moved to LA, my mom came out with me to LA and then quite almost singular singular gracious moment of my mom's was like the minute I turned 18 she like 
packed her bags and bailed and went back to my dad in Maryland and let me be. I was like, yes. No kidding. It was kind of awkward because I owned the house. So it wasn't like, okay, I'm 18. I can move out. Right, like, right. Shit, now what am I going to do? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Where Where were you living then? Same house I still live in today. No man. kidding? Yeah, I've been in that house since 87. Incredible. Yeah, in Sherman Oaks. So you're you're an actor yep. as a kid. Um, it's pretty well documented. I don't think we have to touch on that too Sweet. much. Uh, <laughs> but what what is a lesson you learned from being an actor that you use either today or just that you took oh, with you? Oh, yeah, good question. Because I think knee-jerk, and, and even for me, when I started TLC and then Icon, the occasional intrepid uh, journalist would do his research and discover that and want to interject it into the automotive story, which I hated. I was like, no, 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 that bears no relevance whatsoever. And in fact, it arguably could negate what I'm trying to do here because right. I just don't like that story. Right. And I had privacy concerns back, which is why I stopped that business for the most part. But I see. So you used to be super resistant, but as, as time's gone by, man, I self-advocacy, communication skills, how to read a room, change your tone, basically communication tools garnered from that and work ethic experience from that, priceless, uh, I think, for the rest of my life. Like, yeah. Genius. And. I arguably had an incredible experience where a lot of people that I grew up with had the polar opposite, mm -hmm. but I loved it. I was never good at being a kid. Like kids kind of bored me and it's like, I asked too many questions and kicked out of little league, kicked out of boy scouts. So in my starts in Broadway in the theater community, you know, eight years old or not, if you paid attention, you tried hard and you were part of the team, trying to make something a success, that community just immediately embraces Except everyone. to do, yeah. yeah. Sure. And, and I just, uh, later on in my career, all the world travels and stuff from it were great. What sucked was preconceived judgments of who you were based on characters you played. Which makes no sense. Makes no sense. People are not very logical sometimes. And the, the loss of privacy. And I was never famous, but I mean, I was like, teeny bopper magazine cover ish so like i wouldn't go to a mall on a weekend in the 80s but like generally had my privacy but i had friends who were like major stars and their life suck right and the more i looked at this like okay if that is the the end goal or a necessary aspect of the end results of your career success that ain't worth it and this is pre-social media yeah yeah, and I mean, I had a stalker, I had a serious problem with a stalker um, who eventually got prosecuted, and um, that's what made me look to my hobbies and start thinking, could this be a career? Could this be a career? <laughs> How do I not ever have to get a real job? How do I continue doing something I love? And ideally... How do I do something I love where at least I feel I have more control in the end result? Right. And my privacy. Sure, sure. So it worked out so, good. What uh, what kind of music were you into as a kid? Um, being a Broadway geek, it was mostly like show tunes and stuff. Really? Yeah, totally. And like Sinatra and early stuff. And then, 
in the city. I remember my first Walkman, walking my brains out in New York, roller skating, or oh, I was such a goober, even a, a unicycle. Dare I admit? No way. Oh no, yeah, I was that guy. <laughs> um, yeah, what would I be rolling? I'd be rolling the Eurythmics. I'd be rolling Dire Straits, especially uh, yeah, Money for Telegraph Road, actually. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, Love of Gold, that earlier stuff. Um, big, um, always love the Mozart Four Horn Concertos. Um, I mean, I have a ridiculous. You need to have dinner with my wife. <laughs> I have a ridiculously diverse, like Hector Yavo, who was like the basically the Puerto Rican Elvis. Um, through to African rock, through to, you know, early reggae, like Dennis. I mean, like, oh, I just, I love music. Like, I'm all over the place. So what was your high school experience like then? Were you homeschooled or like, how'd that go? So it was 50-50 polar opposite situations in New York. It was incredible. And part of the beautiful experience that I reference uh, to that stage of my life, because I went to this really interesting school called PCS. Okay. So it was professional children's school. So we had weird hours and we had a correspondence program alternate to when you couldn't be in school. Uh, so it was like a school of the arts kind of thing? No. So there was one of those in the public school system, which was like a zoo of crap education, but you can learn how to dance. Right, right. This actually, and it's still there and thriving. Um, really, with the, I mean, the teachers, their understanding, the education quality were all epic. But the most exceptional aspect of it was the community was insane. Because it was either like NATO, UNICEF, embassy kids. Right. Meet ABT, Juilliard, Broadway, Genius. TV. Yeah. So the... The international student base of various commitments to different arts and expertises, I loved it. It was just phenomenal. Then wow. CBS put me on a contract, moved me to California, and then I went to a snotty um, private school here in the Valley because they were the only ones who would deal with correspondence. And they're like, if you'll pay the tuition, no problem. Right. And they made my life hell. Both the kids and the teachers it was a horrible experience. It's actually the school that uh, Less Than Zero is based on. If that gives you a good, clean picture of it. But like we were talking about earlier, God bless the University of YouTube. And I mean, I like interned, swept floors, shop assistant for one of the most famous traditional Southern Cal hot rod car builders um, through to, you know, finish woodworking shops and go learn that in night school, USC, UCLA extension classes. And like today I've been traveling um, more worldwide to do deep dives into different art forms. Cause I'm like, I think at root, I'm a serial craftsman. Like icon only exists perhaps because of my love for vintage vehicles, but my lack of patience for archaic vintage vehicle mechanical realities and the fact that vehicles combine so many different art forms in one clearly communicable package that's so extroverted. Because throughout the years, I've done clay and deconstructive hard stone, marble sculpting, uh, pre-Raphaelite painting, 
more of a centennial fumed quarterson white oak old school like mission era arts and crafts woodwork and leather craft and forging and so i you know it's such a fun way to combine all of that together yeah for sure well as a kid who was making a living for himself what was your first car yeah so my parents are super traditional and conservative okay so like even in like living in new york I was supporting our apartment and stuff because my dad was still paying off law school and everything at the time. So if I wanted the new Game Boy or whatever, you know, my mom's like, "Mm -mm, you're not touching your money for that. So we had a friend who was an agent who did like Sears Roebuck catalogs and voiceovers, like lower rung jobs. Right. So I'd have to call her up and be like, okay. I, I'm I'm in and I do I go do like the cheesiest modeling jobs of you know you looking like old Sears catalogs of the you know the 10 year old with the baseball hat cocked and his bat over his shoulder grinning at the, the camera the that bright, was my cheesy ass white yeah whatever sleeve. it took I was a hoe <laughs> and then I'd use that money to blow on my Game Boy or my Walkman or eventually got into watches and I lived right off of Times Square so between the arcades and the watch stores and stuff, it was just constant temptation. And then that actually, that ethic carries forward with me now as an adult. Cause like my art and antiques and wrist problem is all supported by side hustle, not by my true income. Cause I, you know, I got two kids in college and mortgages and, responsibilities so I, I have a little little side slush fund that uh i still use just for the inappropriate unjustifiable stuff <laughs> right <laughs> which i highly recommend is like that's like as close as i come to being fiscally responsible beyond that my wife's my cfo and keeps me in line or i would have screwed this all up in a while right like right yeah i mean i feel like everybody needs some sort of guidance at some point you know what's crazy though is how many creatives don't realize that yeah like I, 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 I wish I had learned it earlier on, but I got to a point of burnout when I, by necessity and lack of capital to be able to build a team. But I also think out of a bit of exuberant arrogance of, I can do it all. And past a point building a product, a brand, anything, you can't do it all. You just aren't acknowledging that you suck uh, you know, in an, a significant fraction of the things you try and shove into daily life. And I also was realizing like, if I had to switch from left brain to right brain, it's a very difficult gear shift for me. I have brain damage and I honestly think that might be a dynamic of it. Um, I, I'm epileptic. Wait, are, you, are you being serious? Yeah. What's your brain damage? So I, I had a four story fall and I broke my back when I was 15. And they did not diagnose this to be the case at the time. But over 15 years later, I started having weird seizures, like very atypical seizures, which got more and more advanced and more and more scary. And um, I have partial complex epilepsy, and they think it's related to scar tissue in a certain area of my brain that's adjacent to motor skill and short-term memory. So when I'd have a bad seizure, if it went along past a point, I think I'm saying the medical stuff right, it's simple 
partial complex, meaning it starts in a simple, isolated area of the brain. If it triggers for too long, it starts to affect adjacent areas of the brain, which in turn screws short-term memory and stuff. And I've just always been weird. And I think that's all inter... Like, I can remember the stupidest statistics or manufacturer numbers or references for cars, watches, architecture, who designed what, but like, ask me where my shop keys are or my wallet. And I likely have no clue. (laughs) And like in leather work, especially as I started getting into designing and making leather jackets, there's a lot of inside out stuff. Yeah. So certain stages you make it inside out and then inverse it and then continue other stages. I have the hardest time getting my head around that. Like I'll literally stare at it for 10 minutes. Like, like I I can't, there's no rain man effect when you're morphing. I can't, I can't inverse. It's the weirdest thing. I'll literally build it in paper or in scrap to be able to get my head around it. But that just makes financial sense. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Totally. Especially the cost of some of these crazy leathers. But yeah, at the same time, like that's just, like all of us, right? We have certain ticks. I first organically learned my way around it and how to work with it. Then over time was able to afford to build a master alliance and a crew. Now we're 55 people here. Um, and it extends outside of here to external network of collaborators and experts or go study ground up and learn it or learn when to shut up, zip up, back away and hire the stud and let him do it because that's all he or she does every day. Right. And the brand wouldn't be where it is today if I had not taken the financial risk and mentally acknowledged what I'm good at and what I suck, or at least what I enjoy doing and what I hate doing. Yeah. You know, spreadsheets, financial, screw that. I like, I that hate stuff. that shit. Yeah. It'd so, be the first hire I hire for sure is like an accountant or. Best hire I ever did is my COO, who's yeah. MBA, PhD, Pepperdine. Nice. And creative. Well, not really creative, but digs design. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And like. Can appreciate it. Yeah, because yeah. he can do all the production efficiencies and mapping and analytics and studies. So we study the shop efficiency by square foot, by rack, by technician, by series, by process, by back end, and then JIT just in time. Well, COVID proved JITs in a new perspective, maybe not such a good idea. So production time and all that. I'm like, for me to do that, I got to like kick up some diesel generator in the spider web archives of my head and shut down my creative side. And then I'm in the middle of a CAD file or a sketch out or whatever. And then that transition for me, left brain, right brain, like they're two different humans. I right, just sucked sure. at it. Well, I mean, everybody says like the best way to run your business is to hire people smarter than you. No shit. You know, I mean, yeah. I think that's what, and, and I come an from an, and I come from an apparel background. Oh, I so like oh, I all the, that. all yeah. the best designers all have like a part like Valentino or YSL or Comme Garçon. They all have like the business person. So I can come over here and play with color and shape yep. and drape yep. and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, obviously it's no different in the automotive space, I guess, for somebody like yourself. Yeah, but it's to me, it is a, it's so unique in the automotive space. But I mean, honestly, I think, again, because I have no formal education and I don't know any better. I've been 
now I realize blessed with an open mind by mm -hmm. not knowing any better. Right. So like a lot of our processes, a lot of our reverse engineering techniques and technology through to how we source leather or approach a job from a design perspective, like it's, it's very unique combination mashup of super traditional arts with bleeding edge tech. Um, and I have to be put on a leash by the rest of my leadership team here sometimes um, to make sure it still makes good business sense. Because, you know, the entire division of derelicts and reformers, for example, makes no business sense on paper. It's stupid. Right. So let's jump around for a quick second. So what was your first car? Oh, that's right. I never <laughs> answered that. Yeah. It's so all good. Fiscal responsibility. Parents, okay, you know, you're going to be, you're going to get something reasonable. Well, unbeknownst to them, I went with a friend who was over 18, who therefore could sign up for the stupid auction I went to. And I had a 55 Ford four-door XG-Man bulletproof sedan. But it's before I could drive. So I was just put in the garage and tinkered and restored it. What color was it? It was like this horrible... And I, I appreciate a good mint green, but this was like a bad melted Baskin Robbins the sort of mint. mint yeah. yeah, like the bad one, though. Like there's good ones, but not like the German version, more like the diner version. Yeah, that says it's it all. A little if too it's bad. German, it's probably done right. <laughs> oh, yeah. German coloration, color palettes rock. But anyway, I bought that. They wouldn't even let me drive it. Um, so, yeah, the first new car I had was a low trim... 84 used uh, rabbit Wolfsburg manual trans. Perfect. Love that car, actually. Pretty and that cool. was here in LA? Yeah, I was here in LA. That's a perfect car. Well, yeah. I mean, I drive a GTI, so I'm a little biased. So then I got in trouble because it was, in quotes, my fault that my sister had to leave New York and move out here with us. She's 18 okay. months older than me. Okay. So she was kind of pissy. And it was sort of like reparations in, her, in the family <laughs> that like when she needed a car, I had to give her my car and go buy another car. Right. So then. A reverse hand me down. Yeah. A hand me up. Hand me up. Yeah. So then I went against my parents and I bought a 530. Nice. 73, I think it was like a super early one. Okay. Bucket of shit. <laughs> Literally two wrecked cars stapled together by some hack corner oh, no. lot dealer in Van Nuys. Absolute nightmare. My parents felt that their point was well proven, so they made me sell it. And then they're like, well, you've got some money saved up. Like, just go buy something practical. Go buy a new car. Right. So I went like new cars and like nothing float my boat. My dad's always been a BMW guy. He had like the first 320 in maryland and like i'm like oh that's cool but then i knew a guy who had a chairs and flares dino original paint and it was so sexy and this is before enzo died mind you right so it was 29 grand or so and i'm like screw that plastic new car this thing's cool i'm gonna get this are you serious here's the problem you bought a dino <laughs> No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> because I was a good boy because my parents were already pissed at my last 
two out of three <laughs> vehicle decisions. I'm like, okay, dad, so here's what I'm doing. He's like, you're an idiot. No 17 year old should be driving a Ferrari. That doesn't happen. And too much maintenance, too much responsibility. No, I, I refuse. You can't do that. Even though it was my money. So I'm like, okay. So I bought a 325 convertible and then had uh, Dynan manipulate it. Nice. Nice, except it was worth a third of what I paid for it three years later. Right. right. Enzo died. Meanwhile, yeah. the Dino shot the up. The Dino shot up to like 150. Yeah. I'm sad. <laughs> but I must say I've made out of, I mean, I'm, I have a lot of cars over the years. Um, right, right. And I'm very schizophrenic in my car taste. Um, I've made very few practical car purchases ever since. Which is kind of like um, Bruce Meyer, you know, like his story, his parents, like he was building models and had all these car design and engineering books. And they're like, yeah, forget about it when it came time to college. Right. So then, no, you're, you're going to the same college your dad went to, you're going to be involved in the family business and no way in hell he can be designer. And he went off to school and his parents threw away all his car models and all his car books. And when he found out, Bruce told me, he told his parents like, okay, fine. Let it be known. I am going to be part of the family business and I'm going to grow that business. But uh, you're not taking the car guy out of me. Right. And as you now know, they yeah. sure as hell did it. <laughs> and it's right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> That's crazy. He's I, so did, I didn't know that actually yeah. about him. Um, so what motivated you to start Icon then? I mean, I think, I guess you pretty much already answered that by way of chasing your hobbies, right? Yeah, kind of. But I mean, first I started TLC. TLC. So what's the difference there? So TLC is vintage Toyota Land Cruisers, sales service, restoration, conversions, parts, yada, yada. Um, very small room in definition of what the brand does which made sense at the time, birth of the internet. Suddenly you had the ability to reach a larger audience, but stay true to exactly what you do and don't do. Sure. Over time, the sort of artist designer geek in me combined with my interest in engineering made me feel that I was kind of confined in that space. And you know, I did the street rods and the hot rods and all the different sort of stereotype cul-de-sacs that people have done with cars over the years as far as like buying and selling or building. Mm -hmm. And like none of them like really hit what I had in my head as like the perfect equation. So that was the birth of Icon was after I did the FJ Cruiser prototype design and fabrication for Toyota. And the sort of glimpse behind the curtain of big boy company manufacturing and design process and techniques. And again, not knowing better, but looking at a lot of that and seeing, wow, looking at a lot of that and going, wow, why on earth do you do it that way? Because you're bleeding out identity or personality in an effort to create a one thing should appeal to everyone, which hello does not work. Right, right. Um, so have you always so had then Toyota's I, blessing then? Yeah. So I actually went back to Akio and, and some people at Toyota at the time and said, I got an idea for a new brand that's all about 
referencing epic vehicles from our collective cultural past, but in a modern context to make them more relevant for today's use. Are we cool? Or are y'all gonna take me to court? Because they got like a big black tower full of lawyers. Like, don't want to go there. Right. And got Toyota's blessing, and I owned the trademarks for FJ40 and FJ45 and all of that already. And because the FJ40s was closest to my experience and expertise with TLC and in my life experience, especially in world travel. That's where I started because just coming off of the project for Toyota, I had all these things I wanted to do that just didn't fit Toyota's DNA. So the brand started as like this sort of 3D model that I would build in bed at night to put myself to sleep. I'd keep refining and designing and literally it was like a full-on high detailed rotatable zoomable model and I tweak and I geek and I tweak and I geek and the way I work is that that's happened with wristwatch designs with jacket designs with furniture designs with automotive concepts like it'll literally always start like that and it'll either get to a point that I get the model to a point and I press delete and uh, it sucks okay I'm done or it starts to keep me up and I literally get this visceral urge. I need to build this just to get it out of my brain. I'm the same exact way. I call it creative vomit. Yeah. Like I need I, to I, just I need throw to it express up. this. Like I have yeah. to get it out. Gotta there. get it done. What are Gotta do you find that your creative flow typically happens at night? Um you know, fortunately for my clients, my dreams are free because I do a lot. I <laughs> honestly it's twenty four seven. Yeah. I mean, I can't even be in an elevator without geeking on the cladding in the elevator or in a museum geeking on a finish. Like I'm so tactile. I'm, I guess I would have had a lot of anachrons attached to me if I was born later date. And I just barely avoided (laughs) the Ritalin and all that. Yeah. But no, I'm always so always been inquisitive and detail oriented. Yeah, sure. Sure. So it's pretty constant. Yeah. So take us through the lineup currently. So you're doing, you're still doing FJs. Yeah. So TLC still exists. And then Icon has grown exponentially. Icon now is still very true to the founding origin of classic design revisited in a modern context. Notice I dropped transportation because I have interests that I'd like to see Icon do that. There's so many opportunities to me and design languages from other eras and honesty and material usage elevated by some of the tech capabilities and smartness of today. Right. But anyway, as of now, for the most part, uh, Icon is production models, which include our version of the original Toyota Land Cruiser FJ40 executed in four body styles. Then the 47 to 53 Chevrolet 3100 five window pickup truck, and then our version of the first generation 66 to 77 Ford Broncos. And then those are executed normally in two different design packages that have totally different appeal. You've got new school and you've got old school. Then we have the R&D division or DNR, which is the derelicts and the reformers which can include the occasional Chevy pickup, Bronco, or FJ done derelict style 
where we basically the derelicts hide all of the time and money spent and all the engineering. They honor that sort of romance to me at least of like barn find funk and patina natural patina, wabi yeah. sabi natural decay never faked and then we'll elevate and geek out and reimagine the interior and tactile and touch points maybe even like sometimes that'll happen because we'll have access to the oem's archive and we'll find what the designer sketched for the wiper knob let's say versus what the pencil pushers even back into the 40s watered down in his design intent said no screw that use this we already have tooled it's already on the shelf and that car didn't sell that well we don't um either occasionally that or i'll just pull it out of my booty and just have fun based on my knowledge of that era of design um, or I'll do a deep, deep dive in that era of design from audio or architecture, or marine or rail car or the probably the most fun, which like I did on the Thriftmaster, is none of the archive information was available. But um, as I previously mentioned, like big Raymond Lowy geek. And I was like, oh, that'd be fun. So revisionist history theoreticals of, okay, what if Raymond Lowy had been on the design team? What would he have done with these elements? And then I think all designers, we need confines. We, we need to be framed or hemmed in. So that sort of helps establish that. Like Lowy's personal cars horrendous because he had no leash on him so it's just shit on shit on shit just right, way too right, much crap right. like that's why i love designing watches because legibility math you know the the symmetry like there's so many confines that it, it it's, it's size it's, it's yeah it's exciting it, it it's opens up a whole bunch of by opportunities kind of thing yeah yeah that's cool what um so wait i i guess i i geeked out there a little bit on derelicts but that's derelicts and then the reformer is basically for people who go, why on earth would I spend all that money on something that looks like it's abandoned? <laughs> right. So right. then the reformers are concourse restored, either looking dead stock or elevated versions of stock referencing era appropriate design language. And then across the board, everything we do is all about modern safety, functionality, performance, usually emissions responsibility, creature comforts, you know, just making, trying to get rid of the martyrdom of vintage. Right. And you machine parts here too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you guys make stuff manufacturing. Yeah. Laser machining, um, five axis Haas, uh, VF four super speed. I love that machine, but you know what? Honestly, more and more we're subletting it. So we do all the design work in-house with our mechanical engineer, design engineer, electrical engineer, and myself. But like we've been doing more and more work with a company in San Diego called Evod because they're just better at it. And frankly, it's it's cost neutral to sublet it. And now I kind of feel like an idiot for having bought this sort of ego-based, <laughs> you know, like, right. ooh, five eggs a scene. So I always wanted one and finally bought one. And now it's like we don't use it that oh, much no. <laughs> it is like that's hilarious whoopsies but it looks cool big turret head so you've probably you may have answered this elsewhere i've never heard the answer to this question why don't you touch land rover defenders 
Yeah. <laughs> so I've actually done two defenders. Have you? As part of the reformer lineup. Okay. My team threatened full mutiny. Really? Should I ever do another one? I love the look. The execution, here come the pissed off Roveristas. Let's, let's hear Sucks. It. The ergonomics suck. The materials suck. The extensive plastic, the cheapness of everything, down to like the Defender Center console is like vinyl stapled on plywood with like a Home Depot hinge. Like, I just don't get it. Like, I love the look, but the execution and engineering and manufacturing is just so off. Now, that being said, I'm actually courting finding the right client. And if I don't, I'm going to do it myself on spec which I tell myself I'm not supposed to do, but I'm going to do it. My body manufacturer makes my FJ bodies, took it on, and he's kind of done a Series 2 Land Rover meets Defender. Okay. But properly built out of unannealed 50-52H32, 5-30-seconds marine aluminum. Well, So the original one is a Pepsi can with steel angle iron structure with little pieces of scrap canvas and then they're all riveted together so they literally rust themselves from the inside out like even boat builders in the 50s knew not to do that so (laughs) i guess it worked for them financially but yeah this is like built the way a shipwright would build aluminum and again i've always loved the aesthetic so i think that could be a really neat opportunity to do my version of them but that's the only way to be utterly, completely, entirely divorced from the things from that really yeah. irked me on the originals. Well, I, I mean, I'll speak on behalf of probably thousands of people. I think they would love to see your interpretation of the defense. I just had an email from a guy yesterday, and he's, he's like 300K plus into a custom Defender built by one of the top shops. And he's like, that's not you. He's like, it sucks. <laughs> And I hear this frequently, and I'm not picking on any particular shop. It's shortcomings of the platform that are just innate to that. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people in that space, but I think this would be a fun way to piss off whatever remaining purists we have not aggravated, but to really create a completely different experience, but with that aesthetic that everyone loves. Sure. Well, I think that's a, a decent segue to the new Bronco. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the new Bronco, given that you give your treatment to the older ones? Um, My thoughts are extensive. My plans are numerous. (laughs) My ability to openly communicate is under a very complicated, litigious uh, gag, NDA, etc., but I am very proud of it. I think the team did an incredible job of not doing the knee-jerk retro anime approach right? while honoring the utilitarian roots and expanding upon the root usability functionality that makes that vehicle class worthy of existing and elevating the versatility and functionality in many new creative ways that I don't think even have been thoroughly publicly discussed yet. But I'm, I, have, I have three on order. 
So we can start there. Now those aren't personal cars. Uh, one will be a, a special uh, launch edition with some off-menu requests and tweaks. The other two will be pretty straightforward ones. And I intend to reverse engineer the piss out of it um, or get support from Ford um, to uh, there's just tons of opportunities. So, yes, in a perfect world, I'd love to see Icon Edition 2021 Broncos available at the Ford dealer like the Eddie Bauer package, but relevant and elevated. Yeah. And but but strictly honest to my brand DNA, not like floor mats and stickers, like tactile quality and stuff. If that happens, great. And I seem to have no ability to guide that ship into the harbor. You know, mice and elephants don't dance well together. I don't even know who to implore at Ford to encourage that. I have tons of friends there. Um, but either I do that with Ford or I do it myself. But we're definitely going to do the icon touch on on that platform sweet yeah super excited to get started on that yeah fact. yeah no, that's exciting for sure how often do you buy the donor car if you will constantly okay so is that normally the way the operation works or do you get donor i have cars to from chipmunk the donors especially the broncos have become crazy expensive right. and very difficult to source yeah so i try to be at least a dozen FJs or Broncos ahead of sold units. Very, 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 very rarely do people have the vehicle to provide for me to restore and modify. Um, although it happens, like we have a Thriftmaster we're actually building as a derelict in line and the client already owned the truck and owned it for like, I think like a decade and it's like perfect for a derelict. Um, but yeah, quite rarely do people own them. So I'm, I have a network of hunters and we're constantly sourcing and buying, which gets me into trouble because a couple of my hunters know my personal tastes and they'll just lob interesting, nifty, just odd mechanical situations that I have no buyer for. And I end up buying and getting in trouble with my wife. <laughs> but I bought a really cool one recently that uh, I was kind of secretly hoping COVID would hurt the business enough, but not so much that I could actually build a car for myself. <laughs> and what my plan was to put it in the mix, but now I can't because we're crazy busy. So it's a Graham Hollywood. I'm not familiar with that. No one is familiar with it. They made like, I don't know exactly, I think a hundred and something of them before they went belly up. But it's based on Gordon Burig's, um cord... Beverly sedan, you know, the coffin nose, which yeah. I've always loved. And then when that company, Cord Auburn Duesenberg, was going bankrupt, they talked Hupmobile into buying the tooling and they misrepresented it and said it was unit steel, one piece stamping, super easy and scalable, which it was not. Then, so they sold it to Hupmobile. Hupmobile redesigned the front clip, put it on a traditional rear wheel drive chassis, cheapened out the interior a little bit, and they briefly sold the Hupmobile Skylark for under 500 units before they went belly up. And then there was a big merger between, who was it? I think it was Hupmobile, Graham, Hupmobile, Graham. 
and Page. And then they took the, not secondhand, but thirdhand tooling. They redesigned the front clip again, elevated the gauges back to Burig's original design, and launched the Graham Hollywood, which like even the font on Hollywood is pricelessly perfect. Suicide doors, low slung, so four door sedan, 41. And it's stupid cool. That's amazing. Original paint, cool patina. So I eventually want to build that out as a keeper, but I don't know when we're going to have time to do it, which kind of sucks. But, you know, that started with, you know, my hunter. Oh, and this cool. Like next thing you know, I'm loading up the trailer and right. <laughs> draining the bank and hitting the road to go pick it up. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Let's talk branding for a second. Hmm. How did the lizard come about? Hmm. Well, I am a firm believer in iconography. I'm a big typeface geek. I think brands need symbolism for nanosecond permeation and attachment relationship, subconscious value stuff. And then um, I had a bunch of pretty bad ideas for naming icon. And my wife came up with icon. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then serendipity has been my friend, man. Cause like I went on the U S you know, TPO or whatever the patent site, whatever, you know, yeah. patent trademark search. Yeah. And like, GM owned Icon for over a decade. Ford owned it for decades. And like, I think literally 30 some days before my search, they let it expire. No kidding. Yeah, which is killer. And that kept it in the automotive space. Yeah, and they never used it. They just right. chipmunked it away. And then... um now, unfortunately, it's become a revenue model for attorneys in trying to protect it and police it because U.S. trademark patent, trade dress, copyright laws is a joke. Written by lawyers for lawyers. Right. There's no defense. Um, I'm, I'm over it. Well, you, you had a, a pretty poignant conversation with Mickey Drexler I heard you talk about. Yeah, yeah. Can Mickey's you, can you kind of retell that story? Hero and long friend of mine. Is he a client as well? Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I don't remember which. I mean, there's so many Mickey stories, but I think the one that sticks out to me the most is when I had that sheep jumping fence model, you know, my fall asleep model FJ40 for Icon as I envisioned the brand. And I finally set out to build it. I took some saved money and one employee, and we kind of sequestered ourselves in the old building in Van Nuys in a single, like, 1,200-square-foot bay, locked the door, turned the music up, knock it out. Then I went back and added up what it had cost to build right. and had a massive reality check, scary moment of, this is not going to happen. Like, there's no way people are going to pay for this, especially at that time. And... I was really struggling with it. And, and Mickey, I consider like of our generation, just a brand genius. Yeah. And he's guttural. He's in he doesn't debate and do focus groups or any of that nonsense. It's a knee jerk gut reaction. And Mickey basically said, don't be an idiot. Build your dream. That will define you in the market because it's singular and it stands for something and you did something no one's doing. And most importantly, it'll allow you to remain passionate 
about doing it. He goes, if you start watering it down now, you're going to emotionally start to divorce yourself from it. And that's not the kind of guy nor career you want. So if you build it, they will come was the takeaway. So I didn't do any cuts. I left it as executed. I launched it and crossed my fingers. And the cool thing is, is over the years, the demographic that's bought it gets it because of the depth and transparency of that passion. They've enabled me, as you see, like to go further and further and further and further with that. I mean, not with no regard to cost, but it hasn't been about what's the cheapest icon we can sell. It's about what's the greatest capability, highest reliability, most tactile, engaging, elevated thing we can make. And they, the, the customer base has pushed, pushed me north, right. which has been like, you know, that's a dream come true. So would you consider that supply and demand or just, just mm. it's just almost just straight demand? Yeah, it's funny because TLC started based on a bet I had in a USC business class about supply and demand, which I said was BS because we're coming into an era where we have all these new manners of communication and reaching people. I said, if you can control the supply, you can now create the demand. And they said I was full of it and it turned into a bet. And I was given, I think it was two quarters to drive a trackable market up 20 plus points. So I was already buying up land cruisers. So I shifted it up and did it in larger volume just to win like a $2,000 or $1,000 bet. I'd like to take a minute to thank you for listening to the Standard Age podcast. It's certainly been a lot of fun sharing each guest's story, even during the craziest of times over the last year. The good news is it's allowed me to further focus on some of the elements that make Standard Age possible. I've done a ton of product development, some items for well over a year. If you'd like to support the podcast, the least expensive way is to simply rate and review the show on whatever platform you're on. Further, you can visit standard-h.com where you can purchase the brand's apparel or directly support the podcast under the accessories tab. I can't thank you guys enough for listening to the show and for all of your support, especially through social media. It's been so much fun interacting with you and all of the great feedback has been wonderful, so thank you. So many of you are into watches, whether you are just starting to collect them or if you're already in deep in discussing the extensive finishing of the movements. In fact, my most listened to episodes have been watch-related. For those of you interested in independent watch companies, Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California might just have what you're looking for. Previous listeners may be familiar with owner Tim Jackson from episode one of the Standard Age podcast. He and his team are certainly a wealth of information while offering incredible customer service. Tim and his team are quite literally made up of family and friends, so I'm confident you'll feel very much a part of their community, even if it's your first visit. Of course, if California is out of reach, definitely visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information, or visit Tim's blog, Independent in Time, for a deeper watch dive. Now let's get back to the show. Being in business in California is stupid. Right, um, right. Love the state, but the business environment here is getting almost in, un, unpalatable. And real estate's getting insane. 
you see we have a huge building and we're out of space. So like, I don't even know where I could add another production team or production line. Right. But the one-offs are really, for me, like day-to-day the most fulfilling because, you know, I'm constantly tweaking the production models and, you know, we're approaching 200 FJs, we're approaching 100 um, Broncos, um, we're approaching far lesser, I think, 20 Thriftmasters, DNRs or what, probably about three dozen delivered. But, like, that's a constant kiddie pool for me. You know, because the, the the eras, the platforms. I mean, yeah. you saw the diversity of what's here, the styles and that we're integrating through to the manufacturing years. I mean, on the floor right now, we've got from 1941 to 1975 going on. So that's like my little happy space. But again, from a business perspective, I I can't grow it. So we're just being super selective about the customers that we want to join our family because that's a very intimate and long process and the platform. Like we don't want to repeat. We don't want to do another this or another that we want each one to be singular and to explore new engineering, new textile, new leather, new material, new eras and like super fun to, to spread out that way. And eventually, right, that can turn into another production model. Sure. When I think the customer at the end of the day, feels probably far more special in that scenario. And they are, but I mean, they also hemorrhage money. And we hemorrhage so much time and intellect on it that, I mean, they're brutally expensive. And at the end of the year, if we do accounting on those departments, that department, like, no lie, like if we clear 5% net, it's a good year. And that's not a business. (laughs) We didn't keep the lights on. Right. So it's been very important branding wise to express the sort of depth and range of our capabilities. It's been very useful in evolving even the production models because we're able to sort of prototype test bed new ideas. For me, it's been priceless. Um, and I, and I think there are some potential production scenarios that could be born out of it i showed you two today in the overland and the c20 like those could be scalable with a fat upfront investment but it could make sense and you know you let me do it to you again i started babbling and i never answered you about the darn lizard I was kind of you. I, w- I was going to remind you, but I g- no, so it's all good. The lizard started these with... Are, this is why I love talking to you. Yeah, you, we go down all these the, odd There's no straight road here. Yeah. No, straight roads are boring. <laughs> well, I guess if you're in a Prius, but I don't play that. Um, so the lizard. Uh, I knew I wanted a symbol. Deep, deep history geek and car geek huge collection of vintage hood ornaments and mascots i mean there's some here but my house is out of control but um also in southern california if you're in your icon and you're deep 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 in the trail in the woods in the desert pretty much any california landscape and you're beyond where the production vehicles are off-roading Oftentimes, the only other thing experiencing that terrain is the California blue belly lizard. They're everywhere. They're ubiquitous, right? And they're crafty as all hell. They're super adaptive. They're under the radar, far more prolific than we are. But 
they had all these interesting character traits and a very subtle California nod. And that's all BS that I made up to justify wanting Using to the use lizard. it. <laughs> yeah. Because the, the, the origin story was when this was a hobby slash side hustle, I would buy out of like the recycler. Remember the recycler, you know? get up five in the morning, pay off the delivery dudes. I get it fresh from the printing press. I'd get all the California editions, sit there in the dark and read through them, learn to recognize prefixes of certain area codes to like, oh, Burbank, okay, get my ass over to Burbank. So around sunrise, mm, they might be up, start calling people and get there. Early bird gets the worm, right? Sure. So I did that, I think it was in Reseda out in this neighborhood. And typical story, cleaning out the garage, selling the house, get rid of this project FJ 40 that has been parked for 20 years. I never got to it getting rid of the crap. So I go there to buy the FJ 40 and I'm hauling it away and they got a mountain of crap by the garbage bins on the street. And I saw this vintage fireplace screen that had the lizard on it. So already in metal. Yeah. Already in metal. And I thought, is that a real lizard? Like, wow, that's cool. And I stopped and went to check it out. And no, it was like cast bronze. I'm like, wow. I'm like, couldn't really date it. There were no maker mark or anything on it. I asked the guy, is this going to the garbage? And he goes, yeah, you want to take it? I'm like, cool. So I, I was driving a 65 F250 with an old school tool box right behind the cab. So I reached in the box, grabbed my tin snips, snipped it out of the grill and took it, got home, drilled into my toolbox and, you know, a bed mounted, you know, butterfly style toolbox and put them on my truck. So then for decades, he was my talisman. He was my St. Christopher. So from car to car over the years, I always put him on my favorite ride. That's cool. So then when we were starting Icon, I was like, oh, wait, that could make sense here because of these somewhat logical made up backstories. And, and there you go. So that circular sort of angled tail, yeah, that, that was that the original. Is, shape. Yeah, honest to the original. I um, that's amazing. I have them um, made in the traditional lost wax uh, casting technique to this day. Sure. And patina. I mean, as we were talking, like now we CNC them and we three D print them and do all sorts of things with them. But the primary logo that's on our builds is still the traditional one. So. Just to bridge off to sort of what you were talking about earlier about pricing, for example. Mm-hmm. Early days, you're throwing money at this thing, not considering profitability, obviously. What is that equation like now? Like, how do you determine your pricing? Well, it's funny because I think the perception is of of me, my brand, and I guess everyone in our space, that it's a luxury good. Sure. Then if you think of your life, your previous life, apparel, right? Luxury good in pretty much all industrial segments means a 5X to 7X multiple of manufacturer costs to retail. That is not my world. So the way I run the company, or again, people smarter than me that are on my team run my company, is it's a very simple cost metric of... Basically, I mean, we try and operate on a traditional small business math of 30 points. We try and clear 30 points, and then it's a viable business. And we 
or strong wage payers, full health care, 401k. Then you have all of the lovely California HR and liability and workman's comp. Then we like aren't doing $4,000 paint jobs. We're doing very serious paint jobs. We're right. powder coating vintage bodies instead of etching and priming. And there's a lot of hidden costs. So really I view it as the price point is the reality of the lunacy that defines the brand. And it doesn't make sense to everyone. I totally get it. I'm just thrilled that it makes sense to enough people that can afford it. And perhaps arguably even more importantly, it makes sense to a larger audience because they respect the art of the execution. Even if they can't ever tolerate the price point, they understand the art of the, the theology, the religion behind what we do. Now, I was going to ask you this later, actually, because I knew you've been to Africa, you've been to Japan, you've been on yeah, these like 43 countries, if I'm recalling correctly. I yes. love the the perspective, clear your mind, open your eyes culturally, emotionally, artistically, like travels everything. Yeah. To me. Well, I wanted to know like what it's like what the purpose served. I mean, obviously there's probably a vacation element to it. it. There's like a mind, there's a clarity type of aspect to the travel as well. But do you do it for inspiration or to just better your own product line? Is it research? It sounds like it's all of these things. It's childishly, arrogantly, self-centrically about me learning new history, new culture, new technique, appreciating new art forms or platforms or languages or design languages or food and having those experiences with my sons and my wife. The whole brand is somewhat childish, I think, in that way, in that I won't do it unless I love it. Right. And I've been allowed that long enough that now I'm sort of holding tight to it. But I think my earliest traveling experiences were family stuff on a budget, mm -hmm. you know, Mexico, whatever. And, uh, went to the West Indies once and that was great, except it was with my family. Not that that's not a problem, but you know, with your sister, or whatever, you just end up fighting the whole time. <laughs> that's my side of the chair. Um, and then professionally, it was when filming. So not really often having the time to really experience the locale, but like locals on the crew and getting friendly with them or going home with them to family dinners and brief sojourns into different places around the world. Right. But I think it really started deeply uh, starting when I was 17, when I was pretty well known when me and my buddy Brandon could buy Eurail passes, load up a backpack, head off to Europe, and no one knew I was nobody. So I could be invisible and get deep in all these cultures. And like literally hostels in Eurail, a sketch pad, a backpack, and like 10 bucks a day. And had the most incredible experiences. Like, in, I'd be sketching. I remember I was in Bruges or Brugge yeah. in Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. Oh, I love that town, man. And I was just sitting on a bench in the shade with like a baguette and a salami and a piece of cheese, all I could afford, with my sketchbook 
off a canal sketching this beautiful old building. And I got really into it. So like day three, I'm still working on it. And this little old lady comes out of the building and says, you know, I've noticed you've been here for a while and, you know, totally engaged, brought me into the home, cooked me dinner, invited her grandkids and her kids and like made a family thing out of it. No kidding. Next thing you know, I'm staying there for three weeks. And at least, and I miss this, man, because unfortunately I think we're, we're back to a point where Americans are not necessarily held in high regard, regard with open yeah. arms, which is very sad. Um, but even just other backpackers from around the world on the train, where are you going? Hell if I know where are you going. Well, we're thinking of going to Rome. All right, let's go to Rome. Next thing you know, we're like a tribe of 20 from all over the planet. Going to Rome, we broke into the Colosseum in the middle of the night, went down into the chambers. Crazy experiences. Like, met a guy who was an archaeological historian professor at the University of Rome, and that's what he did every night. We run into him at like 3 in the morning (laughs) at the Colosseum. And he's like, well, let me, you guys aren't, you know, we weren't graffitiing or doing anything destructive. And he's like, well, that's very cool that you guys like are into it and, and you you broke the law. <laughs> Ever since then, like travel, 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 travel. And then, you know, when my kids were born and when we started Icon and we're flat broke, didn't have any money, you know, we took a good 10 years off of anything past a week in Hawaii yeah, borrowing say, friends. <laughs> yeah. And then we kind of got to the point for various reasons in like the last t- 10 years of like, what are we waiting for? Like what's, there's no like finish line or end goal. We need to get our game on and like start traveling again. And we've just been shameless travel ever since, especially since I built out the team here. I mean, I've done two month, three month trips. And as long as I have internet access and cell service, I've, you know, my CAD programs, cloud-based, I can do it on my mac now and oh, that's incredible i can have get up at weird hours sometimes or whatever but i can handle a sale do a design send it off to my team and boom party doesn't stop like the business can keep moving that's amazing yeah yeah my game college changer. Uh, game changer my college graduation gift was a year rail pass and a backpack hell yes it was awesome yeah yeah i had the time of my life ah, i recommend it to today's generation man it's such an incredible experience. It used to sort of be like a rite of passage. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be like both my kids uh, coming out of uh, high school, like it wasn't even a conversation. Right. This any is of what your friends doing. were having. Yeah. Like, well, no, I mean, it wasn't of their generation even a consideration. Oh, I see. It wasn't right. part of the experience. Right. What percentage of your clients are repeat? Guess. I bet it's fairly high. It's, it's, I never anticipated it. It's approaching 40%. That's incredible. It's nuts. And like, we have clients that own, who's the, who's the biggest icon goober? Maybe nine. Holy smokes. Vehicles. Multiple houses, I'm assuming. Oh yeah. 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 Wait. Okay. So without, this is no shade at those people, but does that ever take away from the sort of like, kid in a candy store aspect of the new customer like don't you love to see the no. reaction of the no first? not not kind of not really because they don't order t- well usually they don't order like duplicates time, of the right. same usually the first uh, f- that's funny because like if someone 
reaches out to us. I want three vehicles. I want one of these like this, one of that yeah. like that, one of like that. I immediately smell BS. And I don't know what the game is, if it's... They haven't made up their mind, that's the thing. Or they want us to think they're ballers, or they're calling from prison and keeping themselves entertained. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it never pans out. Honestly, I don't think ever has panned out. So they usually start with sort of our gateway drug, a production Bronco or FJ or TR. Then after they own it for a while, and they really start to, on a deeper level, understand what drives us and what makes an icon an icon, then they start exploring, mm, maybe I'll get one of these. Then they get into a derelict. Then they buy a house somewhere in the mountains. And they're, then it's like every time they have an opportunity to express individuality in a non-ostentatious manner, relevant to a new locale or function, they engage with us and they get it. Um, I think the the client who buys it puts it in their man cave to check the box because their friends said, oh yeah, you got that, you built that new McMansion and you got the six car garage and, you know, new car guy asks his cool guy, car guy, buddy, what okay, what do I need? Yeah. And they chip off the list of the things that no one needs an icon. Um, and we're on that list, which blessed be us, right? Cool. 100%. But then it's like, it sits there and it gets like 300 miles a year. Which drives you crazy. Drives me batshit. I'd rather it come back beat to piss, rolled, hammered. Broken like, axle. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. you know what? No one's ever broken an axle. Um, but like, I want it, I want them to use it. And I don't... Sure. Even if that is, I don't care if it's you and your lab going to Starbucks and the farmer's market. I won't talk crap about that. Good for you. That's your life. The, the point of an icon is to enable you to have experiences. The, the vehicle can singularly be the experience or the vehicle can just be the tool that enables the next experience to get you to the trailhead you cross country ski on or whatever. So no, I, I, um, frankly, I, I, I'm surprised how cool our customer base is because I think, um, traditionally you think of rich people as being a pain in the ass, but I, I think the, the people who are drawn to us are not your typical rich folk. Like they, okay. The reality of the price point means you, you, you're going to have to be able to pay for it, which means they're going to generally have some wealth. What do your vehicles start at currently? Um, I just came out of the Roadster version of the Bronco and the FJ to less trim, lower price point, uh, easier to engage. Um, and I think we're starting at about 175 now. Um, the production models basically... 175 to 350 now and i would imagine the more a client tells jonathan what to do with the vehicle jonathan's building the higher the price goes no no i mean like the the production models i've spent a lot of time 
just over a year ago building out configurators on the website that are very in-depth and visual. So people get that sort of Nike ID personal engagement and attachment and pride into their own configuration, which is, you know, from a list of standardized materials and formulas that we're comfortable with. And that's easy. The one-off stuff is a much deeper dive interpersonal. Um, cost is related to how far off the menu you get, right? Right, right. Or <laughs> sometimes it's, uh, I don't like your this. I think it should be like this. I want to use a that. We'll get out of our brand DNA comfort zone of, well, no offense to that manufacturer, but that bumper has no synergy. Like the reason I design and manufacture my own gauges and knobs and switches and handles and seat hardware and consoles and bumpers and wheels is for there's consistency in the design language, which is so often lacking in, I hate the term, but what do you call them? Resto mods because so many things are Jimmy, Johnny cash mail order specials of bits and pieces. And you lose that continuity, the continuity in our engineering having been addressed cohesively all together elevates the drive experience. I want the same in the design experience. So actually Rod Emery and Rob Dickerson, Rod Emery and I did a Facebook live. I think you were there at ether years ago. Were you there? I wasn't there. No. no. So we went out for drinks afterwards and we got into the discussion and it just so happened at that time, all three of us were dealing with clients that wanted things that made our sphincters retract, like for our brand, like, no, don't do that. So we all compared retorts of like, how do you handle it when they want purple underglow lighting or they want a fish tank and a TV monitor and like just <laughs> pin my ride shit that's like all three of us. I mean, we're, we're, we're artists. Right. I mean, if you don't think so, I get it, but we at least think we are, you know, and like, no, no, I'm just, I, and how do you say that right right and run right. a business so yeah, emery's was the most eloquent and uh, we now i think to this day all three use the same canned response that is a hybrid of our three individual ways of handling which is kind of like you know we're not really comfortable with that and you came to us for what we do we plead you allow us to continue to express our opinion that being said, it is your vehicle. When you get it, you have the right to do whatever you want to do with it. But it needs to leave here with the entire team proud of it, and it must reflect the brand identity. values, yeah. identity. Yeah. And that's, well, I think that's that worked. I mean, we've, I turned down a lot of jobs. I mean, it took me decades to learn how to say no right, and pass on a job, either because of personality concerns or just the project's boring or been done a billion times right. or we've done it before or stuff like that, which is all easy to say in a time when we have a waiting list. But I'm sure there may come a day when I, I got to do uh, free brake inspections and repeat builds or commoditized builds. And I, I hope not but i mean that's the end of the day it's a business so if i have to evolve in that direction it would, it would not make me a happy little boy but right. I, you know it could happen to all of us well i think that pairs well too with what you were saying about the misconception that rich people are a pain in the ass to deal with yeah. because they understand what you do they believe in what you do 
They enjoy what you do. Fortunately for them and you, they can afford it. So here, just take my money and and let me pick up my car in X number of months. And I think there is a brand veneer buy-in type luxury, wealthy consumer, Mm -hmm. but he's at the... He's at the luxury car dealership being a dick, you know, or being right. whatever. And it's a power game. And it's it's yeah. it's frankly a broken model. And I think just like we're seeing this renaissance of people giving a crap about consumer commoditized goods and having a little bit more price elasticity to tolerate something that'll be more sustainable and longer lasting. I think you have more and more consumers, especially in transportation and maybe i'd say in luxury bags and leather goods and to i can't include watches very little bit to watches who are now looking at the luxury brands you know as bs it's it's a veneer it's it's a i call it heritage badge where it's the badge of the heritage brand that's been bought and sold and hoard out and it gutted no longer so many exists. times. It no longer exists. Yeah. It's a veneer of luxury marketing. And I think people are starting to break the glass on that. Mm-hmm. And that's our guy. Now, my favorite client and the one it might likely end up costing the most <laughs> is the one who comes in. It's generally someone that we've built several vehicles for. Rarely it's not. And it's just a connection. And they go, you know what? And I had that a call like that this morning where you get, got here and it's like, build it like you're going to keep it. Right. I do what I do well, which allows me to be able to call you to allow you to do what you do well. Build it like you're going to keep it. Well, and this goes back to what you're saying about being an artist because you're shooting for an aesthetic. You're not shooting the the look for less. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's design without compromise is so much more valuable not because it costs more, but because of the honesty of the honesty. Yeah, exactly. And the cost is a reality of the honesty. Right. Right. I mean, all the way down to build it, like all my aluminum is us sourced aluminum. I could no exaggeration. I could take a 3d file of a product I designed. I could send it overseas, have it machined, shipped and taxed and landed here. For less than the chunk of raw billet aluminum costs me in America. Before it's CNC'd, before it's surfaced, anodized, polished, machined, chromed, or anything. That's incredible. But there's reasons for that. And if you give a shit or if you don't care but you're curious and you got the time, I will rip your ears off telling you way more detail than you ever needed to know about the deep dive backstory that resulted in that respect and appreciation, not to mention for like, I have a serious interest in wanting to keep industrial arts alive and manufacturing alive in America. It's a big part of how this country was formed. And frankly, one of the better parts of our somewhat questionable social history of being risk takers and inventors and creatives and trying new ideas. Um, I want to talk to you about your use of color because we talked about it a little bit in the garage. Why do you choose the colors and how do you go about choosing colors? Well, to me, colors speak to more than color. Colors are texture. 
colors are emotions, energies, vibes. Mm, they sort of set the stage. So for me, you're ordering a Bronco. Okay. Where is it going to be used mostly? What do you like to do when you're there? What's your cabin or your house or whatever look like? Are you a watch guy, girl? What era of design do you dig? Oh, you like vintage furniture? Can you take some pictures of your favorite shit? Um, it's a collective. It's a key ingredient in establishing everything. So that being said, often if I understand bigger picture, the collective vibe, I'll often start with the leather or the textile because I have more control with the color purely. I can mix, match, spectrum, analyze, do custom colors easily versus to do that in a jacquard weave. Oh, God, we're doing that right now. It's like 80 yard minimum and I need eight yards. Um, but that's fun. <laughs> but timeless. That doesn't mean I don't steal colors off of new production cars. I have been guilty of that. <laughs> um, I like those like smoky hazy jelly bean colors is what I kind of call them. Yeah. So I mean, they can be super vibrant, but not obnoxious because there's like a, a ghost to it, a haze to it. Right. Right. I think satin and mats kind of jumped the shark. Um, back when we did it, it was kind of novel. Now I'm kind of, it's everywhere, which is part of the reason I, I get bored a little easy. So like old school was fun for me to, have a whole new list of tasks to reinterpret those platforms in a more retro, fun, kitsch, old school way, which also allowed me to um, use a completely different palette of ingredients for color and texture and textile and, you know, all the funky colors you're seeing us come out with now. Just keeps it exciting, keeps it fun. And sure. it appeals to a completely different group of consumers that we're seeing a wider demographic come into the brand. We have more female clients today since launching old school than ever before we had like one or two now we have many great yeah it's cool that's awesome and it's creative for us it's fun what about the old days the early days of icon do you miss <laughs> and what do, are you glad you no longer have to do well of tlc and icon i'm glad that i'm still not working seven days a week which my wife and i did six seven day 12 hour day plus weeks for a good 10 years. I certainly do not miss worrying that am I running a pyramid scheme <laughs> in that literally it was so hand to mouth that meeting payroll every two weeks was a struggle of, Ooh, we better collect a deposit on that job. We better get the progress payment on that job. And then I start, Jamie's my wife and I both start worrying, well, wait a minute, are we using that guy's money to pay for this job? And I guess that's okay if we're accounting for it as long as the cookie don't crumble. Right. So finally getting to the point it took forever to be just financially secure. And I still have no nest egg or savings, but like I'm fairly comfortable. Payroll's confident. Clients are solid. We have a good buffer. Now, granted, 
and we thought it could have been COVID. Unfortunately, it wasn't. But some calamity hits at the scale we operate now. Right. I think I've realized over the years I'm in the same business as any 50 million or under market share company. We're on a thin ice with a blowtorch culturally, right? Like the tap turns off. There's no new sales. There's just bills coming for three, six months. Eh, You know, stressful. But I think that nightly, daily stress financially, that amount of time must work, can't do anything else having to wear so many hats and and being just utterly physically, mentally exhausted, trying to juggle all those responsibilities, knowing I'm not doing a good job at all of them because I'm trying to do all of them. I do not miss any of that. What do I miss? I think honestly, probably the only, yeah, the, the only thing I connect to missing is a deeper, more personal relationship with my employee team. You know, there were six of us, then eight, then 10, then 12. At this scale, it's, you know, it's hard to even know everyone's full name. And I also actually, second thing I definitely miss, which I've figured out how to address. At this scale of a company, I'm doing communications, sales, design, back end on the web, product planning, forecasting, future product development, and all that stuff, which is which is my love, right? Right, right. And that's a fairly full plate. What I don't do anymore is I'm not out there with the English wheel, the planishing hammer. I'm not welding. I'm not crafting. I'm not turning wrenches. I have two huge snap-on boxes here that are covered in dust. I, I'm, we're at the point that our master alliance, our team is so strong that I've got guys here that are better at it, any variety of those skills, than I ever was. But I miss that visceral, simple stone age of sharp thing, less sharp thing, hit less sharp with sharp thing, make wheel. Like I miss that, right? Yeah. So when my first son went off to college, immediately gutted his room, turned it into my home studio, and I am, it's game on. (laughs) So now with Leathercraft, I really appreciate the simplicity of it because the art of how you do these simple things makes a difference between a hacked up slice of a dead cow with some thread versus something <laughs> that is elevated and yeah. unique and beautiful. I make my own jackets and wallets and belts and bags and suitcases and watch rolls and watch straps and on and on and on. And then like Instagram by demand, it's like turned into my new side hustle where I, I craft uh, all sorts of stuff for people. And um, that was part of the Japan trip. It was part of my France trip. I, um, I just, I love that like craft deep dive. And it gets me back to literally very simple things, reasonable timelines from concept to sketch to CAD to hands on hammers and hand stitching and done. And I am, I'm refulfilled by that. That's amazing. Well, I know you're a watch guy, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you've designed your own watch. Yep. 
several. I've only executed, manufactured, and sold one. And then I got a whole, there's some on the wall over there, um, whole line of silly stuff I want to make and bring to market at some point. Okay, so when is the next one coming? I don't know. I was going to do a partnership with a with a large multinational brand, and that fell apart because either it was either we dumb it down to make this that we think will sell at a reasonable price point that was nothing interesting or dynamic to me, and I felt would hurt the brand, or if you want to be a geek about it, you want to execute your vision without what our marketing group says, then you're buying the entire production run and that's on you. And I'm like, uh, I'm not a watch retailer. Right. Ain't playing that. Right. So I don't know. Frankly, I think the next step is I did a run of 50. They sold really well. I have four left or five left. Okay. Until they're all gone, there's no way in hell, despite we're already in the black, there's no way my wife will let me do another one. Right, right. She's much more responsible. Like, nope, you still got four of these. All this out of my safe. Not doing another one. My latest thing that I've been thinking a lot and researching is vintage luggage. Okay. From the birth of personal travel. Sure. So So you're talking like 1920s. Yeah, 20s, 30s, right? So getting away from... Those ridiculous, like you're going on a cruise and you, you, you've got those big trunks, like right. just after that. So for those of you that are listening to us on the radio, I'll describe <laughs> what I'm holding up. So this is late 20s, early 30s, British made aluminum riveted construction Sort of what Samsonite, I think, took and ran with later on. But this was personal air travel design, right? Yeah. And then you then you think of even through the 40s, 50s, 60s, like the faux alligator rigid cases. And, like, you'll see them at, like, a swap meet, and you're like, oh, that's so cool. And you go to pick it up, and it's like, holy shit, is it full? Nope. And, like, it doesn't have wheels, and it's uncomfortable ergonomically, and it doesn't – you know, there's all these things missing. But, like – that's how Gucci started because he was a bellman at the Savoy hotel in London. Oh, really? And he's all frustrated. And he was like, this shit, shit is so heavy. So he started making his own bags that were lighter. Oh, that's and that cool. was I never 1921. That. I never knew that history. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, many people probably know you also from your Hodinkee talking watches. Episode. If they're watch goobers, maybe so. Yeah. What uh, is there? I was like met- the watch antichrist. He's like, what's the <laughs> reference number? I'm like, hell if I know, but look at that patina. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is uh is there a method to your madness from a collecting standpoint? What what allows a watch to make it's, it into your possession? Eh, I guess the same as everything that draws me to everything you can see from your current vantage point in my office overstuffed with shit. Color, <laughs> texture engineering personality not copycat unique execution unique functionality and you know as you can imagine with watches that could manifest itself in a ridiculous array stories patina history authenticity irreplaceability but it's not about price point either other than the limits of my tolerance i've got watches that i scored for 
30 bucks that yeah. I love just as much as the, the nuttier ones. Sure. What, um, what's up with go campaign and you did an omaze. Yeah. It's live as well. right Let's now. talk about yeah. that stuff. Yeah, man. It's so sad. The level of distrust in the general public. I've been appalled by how many people are like, this is a scam. He's going to give it to his friend. I'm like, really? Really? Yeah. But no, it's like federally regulated. And if you know anything about me, if you know anything about Omaze, you know anything about my charity, like, hello, it's right. an incredible opportunity. In fact, Omaze saved my charity's butt because, you know, we lost. I do that event that you kindly support every year. Sure. We do two big events every year for Go. I host one of them and then our, the rest of the board hosts another one that's more the fancy pants thing. Mine's... A little more lowbrow, high fun. Yep. We had to cancel them both. Wow. So while, you know, the whole idea, Go is about finding local heroes in communities in the U.S. and around the world that are already doing something that's making a significant positive impact in the lives of children within the community they know. Mm -hmm. We merely come in with grants, basically financial and intellectual equity, and we connect them with our global community of like-minded local heroes to extend their reach, increase their efficiency, help them understand how to make it a sustainable, self-fulfilling financial model that increases their impact in the community. And as you can imagine during COVID, it's impossible. It's, it's so sad. Yeah. yeah. But Go's been doing pretty good. We've, we've actually, we were concerned at first but we've had a lot of match raise. Fundraising's been relatively stable. Nice. We've had a lot of increase in community needs, but also a lot of new ways to help communities. Like we're doing a super cool program right now in uh, Compton and uh, Watts, where you know a lot of the homeschooling stuff sounds great, except those communities, the infrastructure sucks. Right. You know the income levels are low. And the Wi-Fi network, even if you pay for it, the distribution is garbage. Oh, man. So, like, we had a, for example, a gang reformation program for kids, tattoo removal, community education space. We're not doing tattoo removals anymore, <laughs> but that local hero engaged with local councilmen and local community and the local police. We raised the funds, and now we have basically a safe zone with super high speed Sweet. connectivity and computers the kids can check out and take home so they can actually stay up with school or at home even if they had connectivity but didn't have a computer, right? Or they had computer and connectivity but no space for quiet or unhealthy home lives, whatever it might be. We now have access to tutors and mentors and computers and high speed data download. And like, it's that simple. Awesome. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, building a new wing at UCLA. It's right. grassroots shit yeah. that makes a difference and makes a difference quickly. We went from our local hero having that idea to being funded and populated in 45 days. That's now, it's incredible. still getting better. We still need to grow. it. We still need more funding. But boom, community leader sees a problem knows how to solve it. We come in, we help it, we execute it, we add ideas, we try and find new partners via technology, hardware, software, or just good old-fashioned money, or the police department to help support it and communicate it. And Go is like <clears throat> so visceral and so connected and so, like I, I used to work with big, big charities until I saw the reality of it and it's scary yeah. and frightening and a disgrace. 
So um, go is where it is at. And gocampaign.org if you want to learn more. And um, please be my guest. Join us. Our gala is coming up, and it's uh, late October. I think it's October 25th, and it's only an hour and a half online, and we're doing many documentaries telling stories of specific local heroes. We're doing a live auction and appeal and celebrities and live performances. It should be fun. Awesome. Well, as you said, I've, I've been a supporter, and, you know, Go Campaign's just done so many good things. Um, this has been a great thing. Um, Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time. This yeah, no, I incredible. always enjoy you. And, and far longer than I even imagined. This is this is awesome. I could talk to you all day. Yeah, I can talk to all these so, voice. Well, like, we could always do a part two later when you launch your next watch or whatever. But all right. uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. And guys, if you're still listening, <laughs> thank you, Standard Age. Yeah. Community. Good deal. Talk all right, buddy. You. Thanks. As always, I'd like to thank Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for providing the theme track, as well as to clear audio for the noise-canceling headphones. In two weeks, I'll return with another episode in time for Christmas. And until then, stay happy and healthy. Thanks so much for listening.